Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. No, when it comes to things short. <laughs> Go on. I'm five, five. <laughs> when it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories every damn week. And you always pronounce them so well. Check it out. <laughs> five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. And twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So there are like maybe a hundred people in this world that have a lapel pin. So we want to double that number. Seriously, right. 20 bucks. That's less than what Oliver spends each week on light-bodied red wines, whatever they are. <laughs> like Gamay, you know, like a Cru Beaujolais, you know. Don't think it can give? Yes, you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or retweet us. Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Okay, okay. that was too many calls to action. So the main call to action is give us money, because that's obviously how you can help us. The other thing you can do is review us on iTunes, is that what you said? So if you don't feel like giving us money and you don't feel like spending precious time typing, what you can do is just click that share button when you see our post on Facebook and you could like our page, actually. If you like our page, that helps us get to more people because Facebook is evil and it basically helps us see your friends. Most of all, <laughs> keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. And retweet because Toby loves that. <laughs> Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. Live in the Lakeside Studio on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this evening by George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, tonight we're going inside the huddle with soprano Elise Kakasik, who's here to talk about her new album, Untethered. We'll also quiz her about all the highlights and lowlights in opera land over the past year. And then it's the Decade in Review. We'll talk about what changes Operaland has gone through during the 2010s and what we predict will happen in the Roaring Twenties. Plus, in the two-minute drill, Paris is on strike and what kind of impact classical music might be having on climate change. And, of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. 847-866-9687. Or tweet us at Opera Box Score or post on our Facebook page. And without further ado, Oliver Camacho, how are you doing? I'm good, but I'm worried you can't hear me. Can you hear me? I can hear you. And how about you, George? Can you hear me? Uh, man, I need to lay up the drinking. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been partying for like 10 days straight back home in Michigan with family and friends and all that. And just like, I feel like I need a new liver. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and New Year's Eve hasn't even started yet. This, That's... Is, this is the problem. <laughs> George, stay safe. All right, Ashley, how are you doing? Well, I'm going to go have dinner with some friends. Um, I am back from an extended trip to the south, which means my accent is super thick right now. And I am approximately 30% butter and Dr. Pepper. <laughs> um, I'm happy about it. My pants are not, but I am happy. Um, yeah, this is a, we're deep in the heart of bowl game season right now. So I spent most of my holiday um, 
watching preparations for and and learning actually no just hearing my my non-stepdad complain about different bowl games uh and also why is the national championship so late this I year? Had this, like I had the week. same That's question. It's, it's very odd that it's, it's like, like a two week. weeks. Yeah, why are why do we have to wait so long? It's like a lifetime away. I mean for Ohio State it doesn't matter. Sorry. Thank guys. you. Oh, please. That was like the most thrilling moment of Christmas was watching Ohio State lose and and not having to endure any more posturing and any more um, showmanship from the hated Buckeyes. Well, again, as as a representative of the uh, Southeastern Athletic Conference, I think any of this Big Ten posturing at all is what's so adorable. <laughs> it's adorable. Um, but uh, I will be interested to see what happens when LSU gets in uh, gets in the final game. As much as they, uh, they are not my beloved Razorbacks, they're from the same family, so I have to support them. Fine. Well, let's go <laughs> ahead and let's, let, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Today, we are joined by a special guest live in the Lakeside studio. Her new album, Untethered, we just heard a selection from that. Soprano Elise Kakasik, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's oh. my pleasure. So uh, tell us a little bit about this album. What makes it special? What did you go through to make it? All that good stuff. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a loaded question. Um, well, let's see. I think one of the most special things about Untethered was working with Math and Black to bring it to life. Um, Friend of the show, Math and Black. Yes. Ellie, what an absolute trial. (laughs) (laughs) You had to deal with Math and of all people in trying to make art. (laughs) He's just the best. And he had this brilliant idea. um, I think it would be two summers ago now. uh, And he called me and he said he was really interested in empowering young singers to um, get creative again and really connect with what drew them to singing in the first place and expressing things from the heart and with vulnerability instead of necessarily leading with polish, which as young artists, we are, we are always aspiring to, um, in this, in this art form. Um, and it immediately made me think of these art songs that I had the privilege of singing for Dell'Arte Opera's recital series a year before. Um, and it was the music of Valerie Salbach, mm. a living female composer on the Upper East Side who um, was a singer herself at Juilliard for a while. Um, and the song cycle that I got to work on first was actually erotic love poetry in Sanskrit. Yeah. Um, And from the female perspective, which was really fascinating um, to study. And then the music was just written so beautifully for the voice and complemented the poetry so well. And um, it, yeah, it really just inspired me. And then 
uh, lo and behold, she had two more song cycles uh, that were <laughs> equally as beautiful um, as Mathen and I were were looking into what music we wanted to do. We just decided we have to do all of them. We have to do the entire the entire group. Um, so it turned into this beautiful um, kind of mission of expressing what femininity means um and that's very specifically not expressing what it means to be female but expressing feminine energy um which we which i believe we all have within us um and how dynamic that is and um i think it's a little bit of a tragedy that in american culture we don't have very many examples of all of the different facets of what femininity can be we have a very hypersexualized version and we have a very hyperpassive version and now you know we have the quote-unquote feminazi term flying around um because there's a lot of anger rightfully so um because of history um but we don't have the element of intuition or storytelling or like psychic ability or um deep wisdom of being an elderly uh, human being um, that is expressed in a feminine way and all of the repertoire in these art songs seem to just be this beautiful rainbow of that experience and so Mathen and I kind of felt like it, we just had to we had to go down that path to create this project and bring it to life and I guess that's that's the closest to a nutshell <laughs> version <laughs> that I can get um, on this project because I'm so very passionate about it. <laughs> when you were recording that was in New York City Yes. and yes. how long did it take you? Oh, goodness. It was actually a very fast process. We were very lucky to gain financial backing and it happened very quickly. Um, So deadlines kind of, yeah, crept up on us. Um, We finished the album in about eight months. It was a little, a little insane, but (laughs) also really beautiful. I I mean, I, I asked very adamantly to have at least three months to study each cycle before we had a session. Um, so we did three recording mm. sessions over over that, like, eight to nine months. Um, uh, the last song cycle actually was added at the very last minute. That's a little special secret intel we were originally going to just do, two. We won't tell if you don't. Oh, whoops. <laughs> um, we were just going to do two, and then the, the Emily Dickinson actually was added at the very last minute because we had space. Um and time within the and that was uh, time. one of the clips we heard that was uh, love from Emily Dickinson. Yes. Dickinson, correct? Yes, and so far it's been really interesting. A lot of the the response from the album has been especially positive towards those songs. So we're really happy we decided to add the extra session. But yeah, so we had uh, about three months between each recording session. Each session lasted between six and eight hours. So it was there were long days, but we kind of got into a really good groove. The three of us, um, Chris, Mathen, and I. Um, and then it was all into post. So, yeah. Just a, a big sort of adventure all the way th- all the way through. Do you have a New Year's resolution to do another album? Oh my <laughs> goodness! Year? Well, actually, I mean, it's kind of crazy because before all of Untethered happened, Mathen and I were actually working on the Dvorak biblical songs together. Oh, so those I are also those. like recorded in an archive somewhere. So <laughs> hopefully we we can get things together to, to release that as well. And we have we have a lot of thoughts about things that we would like to to work work for. I don't know about in 2020, but <laughs> <laughs> but definitely in the future. You can take yourself a little bit of a vacation, I think. Um, just I, a little bit. I do have a question, uh, just kind of getting back to the music. Oh, What's about the actual... 
Oh, can oh. you hear? Uh, you, uh, you can keep talking, Ashley. I'll, I can communicate if we're Perfect. having issues. Oh, relay that over to me. Hey, there she is. Um, I want to talk about the music for a minute uh, because you're you are profiling this this composer, this living female composer, uh, and and someone who sings a lot of the repertoire that kind of overlaps what what you have done, kind of in your experience as a musician. And and I I wanted to see if you could really kind of feel a sense of familiarity and home with with someone that knows the voice that you have in in a more kind of intimate way. Were you able to feel a little more connected to that music than say something from one of our famous dead male composers? Did you did you did you get a sense of that? You know, I think that um, that was built into the experience just by the nature of being able to work with the composer. Right. You know, yeah. um, I got to spend, I think it was two different days in two different moments um, in her living room, yeah. singing oh her music gosh. for her and with her there. And oh. she actually premiered her own songs when she wrote them. Mm-hmm. All those, I think it was about ten years ago that they were that they were written. Um, yeah. And hearing her personal stories about why she wrote them and and her interpretations of them, you know, built in that sense of in, sense of intimacy and deeper connection right. um, for me. Um, so I think. I might not be able to give a fair answer because I got to have that experience with her, and I don't think I could meet Mozart in that way. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, yeah. I know some folks that have, you know, we, I've got a few shamans. We might be able to call really. Them oh, see. we can channel him. Yeah. That's amazing. Level seance. What if next Halloween we just did like a, a composer seance for uh, our Halloween episode? We'll, we'll oh my God, Wes, you me Ouija board this studio. It'd be We're great. Doing it. Very spooky. Very spooky. All right, uh, we're going to move on a little bit uh, here, but we're uh, we're going to keep you around. Uh, Ellie, we're going to talk a little bit about 2019. We're going to move into the Chalk Talk. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. So as everyone knows, 2019 is almost over. If you're listening to the podcast version, it is probably over. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're listening live, we're almost there. Happy 2020, everybody. (laughs) We took it out. Um, so we want to talk about some of the highlights and lowlights from the year for a little bit. And I know everyone's got sort of some ideas. Who would like to go first for 2019? What happened? I'm looking at you, Ashley. You look like you have ideas. I, I mean, and again, I, I feel like... We will we will get to the whole Placido. Me- we're gonna get there, so I'm not even gonna lead with that because we're sure. gonna have a longer discussion sure. about that. But uh, one of the things that has has stayed with me, and I know it, I sound like a broken record because I've talked about it multiple times on this show now. But uh, lyrics production of Dead Man Walking mm. was so extraordinary, and it was such uh, it was such a moving experience for me i have loved that piece i have loved that composer i have loved that uh that writer and that lyricist for a long time and so for me i know that some of it's just a personal experience of just like a you know it was a long time coming to get together but even if i divorce all of my personal touches out of it just seeing just seeing what lyric was able to put together and that beautiful creation that they made with with excellent casting really incredible effects it was you know i still think about it that was what mm. month and a half two months ago maybe and something it's, like that, yeah. it's still something i think about every like two or three days so it's it's for me that's one of my highlights of 2019 
I think one of my sort of big highlights, uh, not just for the opera world in general, but also for this show in particular, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but uh, the premiere of Lucia Lucas, uh, transgender, uh, the yes. first openly transgender woman singer on a, on a sort of major opera stage in the U.S., uh, had her premiere of singing Don Giovanni, and we had her on. If you want to check that out, that uh, that interview, it's it's well worth uh, digging into our archives a little bit for. Um, but I think that this year really felt to me like a big sort of turning point as far as uh, and to sort of bring it back to you a little bit, Elise, uh, the idea of uh, uh, gender expression being uh, uh, not just confined to the old binaries right. uh, we've seen as one a really take off this year and last year too and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we do sort of the decade wrap up um, but I think uh, Lucia Lucas's premiere was definitely a major highlight of 2019 at least for me what about you, George? I see you sitting in the corner thinking well, about stuff. Well, I mean, most, most, both my highlights are really lowlights, unfortunately. Uh, um, George. I, I feel like we tend to emphasize the end of the year in its impact because it's more recent in our minds. The death of Jonathan Miller, the stage director, mm. for me was such a dark moment. I mean, I had grown up watching his intelligent, articulate, irreverent productions, not least the the monochromatic Mikado that he did at English National Opera in the early 80s. And when he died in November, I was just so, as a director, I was just so crushed by that. The other person yeah. whose death is not an opera, but in a related field, the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols, the original from King's College, Cambridge, was so different this year on Christmas Eve because Stephen Cleabury, the choir yeah. master, had passed away earlier in the year. Oh, that's right. And uh, I... He will be missed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to uh, to bring it up a little bit, I turn to Oliver Camacho. <laughs> Oliver, do you have any? Yeah, I'm, that's highlights? so weird that you're bringing up Stephen Cleary <laughs> on a, a podcast about opera, but um, that's fine. <laughs> I actually thought that um, it was a very safe uh, program, and I feel like I don't know how much Stephen Cleary had already planned, but I just felt like they just went to like. An old playbook for that one. There wasn't. It was, really it was very safe. Taking. Oh, I don't. I don't disagree with you. It was very safe. But I think you know, as in any arts field, and this is how we can expand the conversation, Oliver, to everything that we talk about on this show, is that if you are brand new in a position, let's say you take over the Vienna State Opera, basically what you change in the first year is nothing. You don't do anything different in your first year because mm -hmm. you want to get the lay of the land. You right. want to mm. test the waters. And frankly, Oliver, as you know from scheduling, it's all been set anyway, probably. Yeah. Um, right. But if, the question if, was, did he know, I mean, how long did he know that he was going to be leading this service? Like, wasn't Clearbury supposed to be leading it? I, I would assume so. Yeah. Yes. So it's, I don't even know if we can draw any conclusions about, because that's so soon. That's He had maybe two or three weeks notice to like, fill in the the new choir director yeah yeah, yeah. who was an old organ scholar and forget his name bless his right. heart daniel hyde there yes. it is what's his perfect daniel hyde yeah okay. ellie full marks um so i'm gonna just grab the ball here and say that this was the year that everybody learned how to pronounce anita rachvelishvili yes. <laughs> i mean she's yes. been on the scene for a while but um chicago audiences got an earful when she sang Amneris here. Some at, of us in person. Whew. At Chicago's <laughs> Orchestra. And um, she also got a lot of HD exposure, met in HD exposure. She sang 
the princess in Adriana Lecouvreur. And I think she was in the broadcast of Samson and Delilah. And there must have been something else that she was in. But I just feel like I've seen her all over the place mm-hmm, all year long. Mm-hmm. And I'm very happy about it because she is really bringing the goods. And she is, you know, she feels very old school in the way she sings, in the volume with which she sings, and just the sort of big personality that she brings to the table with great, coupled with great technique and really just a gorgeous tone. Yeah, the thing about uh, uh, the thing about her, and I like I'm tongue tied thinking about it now. And my first experience with her was in June. Like that's how much of an impact she's had. It, it, the The word that comes to mind is superhuman. Um, <laughs> it is. It is. I, she's a human bullhorn, and I mean that in the kindest way imaginable. <laughs> she. It is. It is the loudest sound that I have unamplified ever heard come out of a human. And, but it is also beautiful. You yeah. know, there, there's a, there's a way to sing loud. That's obnoxious. And, and is, and there's a way to sing loud. That's beautiful. And very few people can master mm. the latter. And, and that is the thing that for, for me is the thing that I just can't, I can't let go of it. I cannot, I mean, I was, I was, you were in the chorus. I was in the audience. Yeah. And I remember just watching the baritone who was singing Amanaz, or I forget his name. I'm so sorry. Mm. He just was like sitting forward in his chair and it had his head turned, just staring at her mouth. Like, what is this? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you should have seen the look on every chorister's face in the first orchestral rehearsal that Mm. she came in and sang. And, and she's, you know, she's very statuesque and, you know, she's got the, got the long hair and she's got a very, like, a very, yes, we love a textured (laughs) hair up in here. Uh, but you know, and she comes in with this like very grandiose style. But she's just kind of standing there, like waiting her turn. And then when it's her turn, she doesn't in you know in her orchestra rehearsal, she didn't necessarily like perform. She wasn't acting. Mm-hmm. She just kind of opened her mouth, and then all of the seats flattened in the house. Yeah. And, <laughs> but meanwhile, she could have you know she was looking off in the distance, like I got to pick up eggs, I got to get some chicken. Yeah. You know, like it was it was nothing <laughs> for her. It was magical. But when it came time to the performance, she oh, then she acted her face uh, yeah. off. Yeah, she was maybe the only person acting. I mean. Everybody else was doing their part, but like compared to how much she embodied that role, it felt like she was the only person on the stage. So. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's. I, I felt, I not the not sorry for that's not what I want to say. I I could understand the challenge that was coming from all of the other soloists on that stage because it was apparent to everyone in the room that she is just. I mean, she takes up so much space, metaphorical and otherwise, that. Mm. It's it's really hard to sing with that and sing against that. And even as Amneris instead of Aida, like your eyes are on Amneris the whole time. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I was so lucky to see her and Natrebko in Adriana at the Met. I would have died. And I would have flat that out. That duet, it was like a battle of the chest voice and a I, battle oh. of the raw passion. It was amazing. Just like a like a starfish face down, open mouth yes. cry. Like that's what I would exactly. need after that was over. Well, at least we're about to change gears a little bit into the decade interview. But do you have any sort of year high? Highlights that you'd like to bring out since uh, we've got I you here in the hot seat. Would, I would. I was so privileged and like prostrate myself um, <laughs> to have been at Prism oh. at the Prototype Festival yes. this past Absolutely. January. And just what Ellen Reed and Beth Morrison and everyone who went into that production was able to bring to life was just an electrifying testament to what opera can be and the social change element of it that's been a little bit lost lately and how um, relevant and important it is. And I just still feel goosebumps from head to toe when I think about the experience of 
of that opera and net then you know the subsequent success of the the Pulitzer Prize for it yeah. which is just and amazing it's it's phenomenal and I, I was actually I was actually going to uh, uh, recommend for all of the people uh, listening out there who maybe don't have access to all the new operas or even the larger companies doing uh, repertoire. Uh, Prism is actually out on, uh, 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 it's been recorded uh, for all you uh, audiophiles out there and I, I highly, highly recommend it. All right, well, 2019 isn't the only thing that's almost over. We're about to head into a brand new decade in opera land. Keep it locked right here for America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Boston Early Music Festival. Bam whose new recording of Handel's first opera, Elmira, is now on sale. Written when the composer was only 19, Elmira... And George was only 13. <laughs> drink. Elmira tells a story of intrigue and romance at the court of Castile. Hello, I'm from Boston. Don't park your car in Harvard Yard. Wow. Is my accent a remarkable success when it was originally presented in Hamburg. The opera shows the early genius of Handel that would soon make him a star in Italy and London. Grammy-winning musical directors Paul, Paul Odette <laughs> and Stephen Stubbs Lead an exceptional cast featuring Amirka Barat. Bob, she's the only person that's been mentioned in two ads. <laughs> two ads. <laughs> Amirka Barat in the title role, Amanda Forsyth, future friend of the show, as the Princess Adelia, Colin Balser as Fernando, Christian Imler as Consalvo, Zachary Wilder, future friend of the show, as Osman, Jesse Blumberg as Raimondo. I think he was on the show we. I really yes. like this future friend of the show that we have going on here. We, speak it into existence. I'm a big believer. <laughs> Teresa Wakeham as Belante and John uh, Jan Kobau as Tabarco. They are joined by concertmaster Robert Mealy and the 32-member Bemf Bemf Orchestra. 32 pe- 30, players. Yeah, 32. That, okay, you're going to get your money's worth on Sa- that. There's a lot of people on this recording. I'll bet. Yeah. Save 20% on your copy of Almira with the code Holiday ho- Holiday Sale. So that's sale. All, one, all one word, Holiday Sale, until December 19th. Use the code Holiday Sale to save 20% at Bemf Bamf.org slash recordings. I feel like they needed a better holiday code on this one. The like holiday, holiday sale. Holiday sale. I wanted like a play on words with like handle or you got to think of the clientele yeah. trying to type in a I'm website. I'm sweating here trying <laughs> exactly. to think. That's why and they can't, they can't type in Hanukkah because nobody knows if it has a C in it. I can't spell it's it. K's. <laughs> so for now it's just holiday sale. Holiday sale, yes. Remember, bamf.org slash recordings. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. That's right. That's what you're listening to. It's not just the end of 2019, but the end of the 2010s. Once again, we've got highlights and lowlights, but for a sort of a grander timescale, as it were. And we also have some predictions for what the 2020s might hold for Opera Land. So uh, what we're going to do here is sort of break down the decade, what major trends we've seen, what we've not seen happen, what kind of things we think will affect uh, the 2020s going forward. Who wants to have a first stab at it? How about you, George? Well, I was I was going to kind of jump onto Ashley's point. I want Ashley to set it up, and I'll knock it down. That's what <laughs> okay. we're talking well, about I before can't. the show, Ashley, about techno- technology in opera. Yeah, no, totally. So I kind of have a 
you know, I have kind of a global and a local uh, in terms of things that have happened here in the decade. So I'll start with my local. Um, you know, this this decade, the 2010s, it also coincides with the residency of Ricardo Muti uh, at Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And, mm. you know, he's you know, his calling card is he's an Italian opera master. And so a number of operas and operatic programs were, you know, at least, you know, concert setting wise, you know, put on stage at Orchestra Hall. Um, so whether it was, you know, a, a concert of the famous choruses between Chicago Symphony Chorus and Chicago Symphony Orchestra, or, you know, the mounting of Aida that we saw last season, or the Cavalleria that's going to come up in 2020, uh, you know, we really have seen, you know, a lot of operas not necessarily being stage stage, but being on an orchestral stage. And I, you know, right. it seemed to me that there's not really that same relationship anywhere else of like something that's considered, you know, a, a non-vocal symphony orchestra that really has this like operatic prominence that happens at least once every other season, if not more frequently. So that was something that for me, you know, his, his residency here defines a lot of the 2010s and his relationship with opera means that on our orchestral stage, we're, we're even getting to see opera there. So it's not just in like a house house. We're not, we're not relegated to the lyric and COT to see, to see grand uh, sets of music being performed. Uh, And something that's a little bit more global uh, for the 2010s is, you know, one of the biggest changes I've seen is, you know, how many platforms, how, how advanced the technology has become so that we have all of these different platforms on which we can consume and, more importantly, give new listeners access to oh, uh, the absolutely. art form that is opera. You know, electronic streaming, recordings of, you know, both old and new. You know, they're giving us access to generations of singers and productions kind of all at one time. You know, we talk about Spotify and Pandora and then the granddaddy of them all, Mr. YouTube. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, he's, you know... Now that it's it's owned who, by Google, who says YouTube's a Mister? I just I feel like YouTube was born in Silicon Valley, and that feels it's like a very a, 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 a lot male, of Misters out there. That's a that's a brosif kind yeah. of place. <laughs> very true. You know, I think like a bro. But it's you know, I mean, YouTube is now like its parent company, Google. It's a verb. You know, it's something that we use to to talk about. Yeah, oh, absolutely. this is how you this is how you find this you know music, this piece, this whatever. You know, recordings have always been something that have been part of at least you know were a big deal in my classical music education I'm sure they were in all of yours I'm sure it's the way that we kind of will introduce people to opera but now instead of handing somebody you know a CD box set of Callus we can give them like we can text them a YouTube link to her 1962 Hamburg performance Mm, of Habanera and that's a lot easier than handing them like a clunky CD case and so we have the ability to kind of reach the masses you know further faster by the way that 1962 Hamburg of Callus is incredible you should all check it two minutes of her just sort of acting and being very callous in silence and then all of a sudden she starts singing it's amazing well you've Um, certainly reached star status when you become a verb met in hd is not a verb phrase as far as i know but there's really no question now that that the met in hd broadcasts they are a household term and they have such a huge reach not just in this country but worldwide yeah Yes. Okay. This is an, an initiative that precedes 2010. Uh, I think Peter uh, Gelb uh, was seen as crazy by by many people, but the man, regardless of what you think of how he dealt with uh, James Levine, regardless of how you think he's programming the net met right now, we're going to look back as the 2010s is when the Met in HD truly came into its own and really, in my opinion, really helped get this art form broad and deep into the culture of this country that we live in. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of those things. And, you know, I grew up, you know, I didn't grow up in Chicago. I didn't grow up in New York City. I, I grew up in a place that had a very, very small regional opera company that did two performances a year, you know. And one I, of them was probably Pirates of Penzance. Exactly. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, I don't want to knock it too much because they did do a very good job. Right. But there are, plen- there are many, many more places in the U.S. where you can go to a movie theater and see uh, the Met live in HD. Uh, then has access to an opera house. Mm -hmm. And that really is something that I think was really only a a dream to that extent. I mean, obviously, the Mets always had its sort of fingers in, you know, the the radio broadcasts and getting into people's homes. But uh, I, I think... The, the step of taking it onto a movie screen, well-directed, too, uh, close-up shots. You know, uh, um, there's uh, ideas about framing the scene. You'll always see, in addition to the stage director, you'll see a directed 4HD by uh, Person X. Uh, and it's it's one of those things that, that that, I think, more than anything else, has affected people's perception of opera. I always love it when I'm you know, sitting in the audience to see Star Wars or something, and uh, there's a, an ad, and I hear the music for the Flying Dutchman. You know, it's just, it's it's delightful <laughs> to me. My father-in-law, he gives me the same Christmas present every year, which is tickets to the Met in HD of, of my choice. So, Oliver, oh, this means our annual date is coming up when uh, you and I get to go see Yeah, a, I go uh, all the time. Um, I just want to say that, like, just to dovetail this topic and then, to and then take over a little bit. We're going to see um, The sex, Met in HD broadcast, yes. to me, is show an embrace of technology and shows like Marnie, which were broadcast uh, last, I believe last year. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or last this year. Uh, or maybe in the spring of last year. Uh, or the spring of this year. Uh, anyway, recently. Uh, really <laughs> show, I think, composer and opera company creating an opera that was meant to be broadcast. I mean, it really does. From what I understand for people who saw it in the house, it read much better on HD um, just because of the style of that show, mm. but my fa- and I loved it by the way. But my favorite performances in HD to date still have been just excellent vocal performances and excellent acting by like Renee Fleming and Dim- Dmitry Rostovsky mm. in that Eugene Onegin. Oh, I was the, just thinking the exact same. Or thing. Nelly Desai and Juan Diego Flores in Daughter of the Regiment mm-hmm. way back in that they were in the prime of their careers and they were both so great. Uh, so yeah, HD. I still think we're figuring out how to really use this technology and, and what's the best way to not diminish the experience in the house. Um, but what I was going to say about this decade as a whole is that something happened, and I don't know exactly how it started, but we know how it ended. Like we are now in 2019 where there is a comeuppance of, you know, uh, James Levine and Placido Domingo, David et cetera, Daniels, uh, which mm-hmm. coincides with the rise of uh, women conductors and artistic directors and um, stage directors and whatnot, you know, coming to prominence. Um, and also, we're seeing more diversity in casting and diversity in the types of shows that are getting produced, um, including, you know, besides racial diversity, you know. Uh, transgender characters or even the the use of transgender singers to make very specific points. And uh, we also see, you know, people beginning to shun blackface in opera mm-hmm. and other and yellowface in opera. Which and took all a of long that time. To, seem, seems to have happened. Only 100 years too late. In this, in this decade. And I wonder if it has to do with, in a way, like the the end of New York City opera and 
things like Prototype and Opera Philadelphia's O Festival coming That's to take their place and just creating more more platforms for new work. Well, I think that the the biggest single, uh, not necessarily the biggest change, but sort of the biggest uh, pusher of the change uh, of change in the opera industry, at least in the U.S., is sort of the uh, recovery from the great uh, recession of the late aughts. Um, mm-hmm. I think this, hmm. the past ten years for me, have been just opera companies reacting to that and adapting or frankly falling apart. Uh, I mean, you, you see more and more, I think at the beginning of the 2010s, you saw a lot of, especially regional companies, uh, still hanging on to um, the, the war horses, you know. Uh, over the past 10 years, and, and a little bit before then as well, um, but you see more and more smaller and mid-sized companies adapting by putting on more chamber operas, uh, more experimental works, works by uh, by people who younger audiences find more uh, relevant, uh, more uh, <laughs> hashtag woke works, uh, so to speak, um, especially with uh, with you know, per people of color as composers and uh, women composers and uh, um, people of non-binary genders. Um, these are all, I, I think the past 10 years for me, has re- that's all been about sort of reacting to the realization that financially that old model of sticking to the old war horses that have been around for 100 years is not working. I think the interesting thing coming up in the 2020s is going to be what happens with those holdouts, what happens with the larger companies who are able to weather um, the financial changes without changing as much. Not to call anyone out here, but the Met. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but even so, the Met seems to have kind of gleaned onto this a little bit. Of, like uh, uh, next season, they're doing their first opera by a black composer, uh, Tazewell, Tazewell Thompson? Tazewell Thompson? Well, um, Tazewell Thompson is the director. Yeah. That's the director, sorry. Uh, Terrence Blanchard? Yes, Terrence Blanchard, Blanchard, that's right. Uh, and uh, they just did, uh, a couple seasons ago, they did L'Amour de Loin, which was their first opera by women since 1903, and to date, one of two, which, you know, is a start. Um, but I think the, the 2020s is going to be uh, sort of a decade that kind of makes or breaks the cultural relevancy of some of these larger institutions that um, that you know are now finding themselves a little bit behind smaller companies, storefront companies who um, had to change or fall apart. Just to finish my thought and to sort of go off on a tangent, um, yes. Akhenaten was one of the big stories of this year. Agreed. And, and in Chicago, uh, a couple years ago, we had Jimmy Lopez's Bel Canto, which mm-hmm. was one of the mm-hmm. part of the Renee Fleming Initiative. And, uh, you know, lyric opera is still a little bit slow uh, to take a chance on new work. And it's been a while. I mean, it's been, what, now four seasons since we've had a world premiere like we did in the 15, 16 season of uh, Bel Canto, of Lyric's Bel Canto. So uh, we're not quite, you know, there yet here in Chicago, but we do have, thankfully, Chicago Opera Theater, which has been hitting it out of the park ever since Lydia Yankovskaya took over. Agreed. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that, um, the life and deaths of Alan Turing, which was part of their Vanguard initiative, it was phenomenal. I love that. Is going piece. to be an opera to log off for. I mean, like it's still in the workshop stages, but as soon as that thing is ready, man, look out for it because it's emotional, it's intelligent, it uses chords in a very creative way. It's got great parts for 
baritone and mezzo soprano like parts that the arias that will probably make it into like the, the aria books <laughs> yeah, lexicon, exactly yeah. no it's i'm really looking forward to it and congratulations to cot for helping get that off its feet and i also want to just say on a micro level before i turn it back to you guys uh, on a very local level that uh, we have had the chance here at Opera Box Score to talk to a lot of the people who have come through the Ryan Opera Center and Chicago Opera Theater. We have the most easy access to those people. We still haven't gotten Joyce Donato on the show. Or <laughs> we'll get her <laughs> eventually. It's on coming. The show. It's yeah. coming. That's, that's 2020. That's yeah. 2020. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, some of those people, like Annie Rosen, for example, mm-hmm. who was in Bel Canto and who was in Akhenaten, okay, you know, yeah. we got her when she was, you know, really at the start of her major career. Uh, and we got Clay Hilly uh, a couple weeks ago, Heldon Tenor, who I such a delight. who I know we're going to hear his name all over the place as soon as he starts singing, you know, Siegfried at lyric and whatnot. So, yeah, it's 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 very much. Uh, I think it's going to be a good decade for us specically. <laughs> but I also now that think, Toby's out of here. Now that, <laughs> oh my god, Toby, oh, too soon, you. too soon. I was totally driving up here thinking about like, oh, I'll see Toby, and then I realized I wouldn't. And then Luther Vandross is a house, is not a home. Just started going through my head like a chair, just a chair. I was a mess. Anyway, carry on. Uh, I, I do think that um, we have. Uh, uh, I think the 2020s are going to be a good decade for opera. My sort of general prediction is that um, with the rise of the Me Too movement and the implementation of new sort of ideas for marketing, who's being marketed to, uh, you're going to have an increase in uh, small-scale operas, operas that speak to uh, uh, the relevance, uh, more cultural relevance. Uh, I know Oliver always says that opera is always a little bit slow to change, but I do think that uh, there's a lot of potential to be sort of on the... Uh, on the forefront of that. And I think uh, this decade is going to be uh, one where it sort of takes up that sort of uh, uh, mantle and uh, continue forward in a very big and interesting way. Ellie Kikasek, of course, hanging out with us tonight on the show as well. Ellie, do you have a prediction for the next year or the next decade from opera land? Something that when you... Look at your morning cup of tea. You, <laughs> you see the potential of this art form for the future. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, I agree with Weston. I think like the social relevance thing and the way that that's been developing and folding into the art form in new works is so exciting. And the stories people are choosing to tell and choosing to set. And it's been really interesting to me that the majority of the new work that I've seen has been all like, completely original text material and completely mm-hmm. original storyline mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that is relevant to um, the human experience today and what it what it means to be in this time when so much is in flux as far as power dynamic and um, gender fluidity and just social fluidity in in on a very in a very generic way um so yeah that's that's my biggest hope and honestly seeing all of that too it's like to me that's what opera what the intention of opera has always been is like to get to the heart of whatever issue is being sung about and that's where the old great things started and so it's kind of cool to see through a modern lens that beginning to happen and shift um, I actually saw this really cool random work in New York that had an iPad chorus. <laughs> <I like laughs> it. 
they were. <laughs> it was called. It was about like Big Brothers watching through your iPad kind of a thing. Sure, sure. And but there oh, were like totally iPads at every table that would sing to you and like would take pictures of you and put them on this giant screen for everyone to see. And just it was yeah. It was called Looking at You by Experiments in Opera. In case anyone's wondering. But yeah, just the relevance is is really. Really, I think what's going to change next. That is that is really awesome, Weston. I I love that you uh, you know you you were talking about the uh, the advancement and the the new you know the the breaking of the binary as it were, um, and and the fact that we're we're being more open about kind of who we're casting and where we're casting and how. Um, mm-hmm. I hate I hate to bring it down a little bit, but to go back to this whole uh, Me Too moment. Uh, another prediction that I have for 2020 is more giants will fall. Uh, mm. There are, so, you know, th- there are the best worst kept secrets in the world that is classical music, most specifically in the world of opera. And we have seen, you know, but a smattering of of the big folks who have uh, who have used either their power or their gender or their intersection of the two to really uh to really advance themselves or, you know, in some more uh, disturbing ways, keep other people down. So in terms of, in terms of the giants that are f- going to fall, like are we going to see anyone who's not a singer fall at I some do. point? I like, believe so. Up to this oh, point, apart from James Levine, who's, who's the exception to the rule. Like, you think he's the only been. conductor that has abused his that, position? Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I certainly don't. The question is like, are they going to fall? Are we going to have a general manager? Fall. Okay. Well, anyway, we've we've sort of exhausted that topic for now. <laughs> but let's. Uh, I mean, just say one trend at the risk of being unpopular. One trend I hope ends, which is seeing works by like Andrew Lloyd Webber or even <laughs> Stephen Sondheim presented in opera houses when they have access to the world's best singers and the world's best musicians who are also singers. <laughs> but um, but, but no. let's stage company. Let's have them play instruments. Don't okay. you want to see, you know, Anna Netrebko, like, rocking a French horn? <laughs> Absolutely. Bobby, baby, I Bobby, Bobby. Bobby. So I don't want to see that in, my, uh, in a <laughs> season that only has eight operas. Fair, and very fair. A trend that I do want to get on board with, hopefully other companies will, is thinking of different ways to use their spaces to, mm-hmm. Ooh, to, yes. to scale yes. uh, chamber opera, even sm- recitals, and Grand Opera to figure out what spaces work best. And since they have access to those artists, putting them in the right spaces. I do think that there's a sort of uh, uh, something to be said for, uh, to quote Pierre Boulez, who also died this past decade, uh, blow up the opera houses, as it were. Metaphorically speaking, uh, I, want, uh, I think there's going to be a lot more operas in unusual places, in unusual settings, like your, your iPad opera that you mentioned er- earlier. The unusual uh, places is a problem. I think that the audiences have to know where to go. So <laughs> I'm, no, I'm just saying that, like, you let's, have a point. You really let's do. look at Opera Philadelphia, which, I'm once again, I'm so grateful that they invited me there, invited us there. But they have like this festival and it's all within walking distance. It's all absolutely these different size spaces, one for Baroque opera, one for chamber opera, one for grand opera. And our local company, Lyric Opera of Chicago, doesn't have that luxury, but they have spaces that maybe they're not exploring, that maybe they can figure out a way to create uh, audience, you know, uh, seats for, for audience to see things. I mean, we mm-hmm. know that they have rehearsal rooms. We, I saw them use the lobby in a creative way. Maybe the terrace. I don't know. Uh, but they can figure it out, and they, I think they have to think about that. I think there's all sorts of exciting things coming up uh, in 10 years when we're all uh, when Oliver's in his 250s and uh, the rest of us are in our, our 30s. Uh, we can we can look back and see what all we got right. <laughs> that makes no sense. <laughs> you know what's interesting to trace over the decade though is how less coherent I become with each episode. 
like I can't string together a full <laughs> sentence. Like I don't understand punctuation anymore. Uh, I just everything is a run-on sentence. So uh, yes, uh, uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting decade. I think we can all agree. We've got one more segment coming up, and you know what that that means. That's right. It's the last two-minute drill of the decade. That's up next only on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Listed, this is great, Listed is must-listen podcast for opera by Playbill. Week after week, Opera Box Score is talking to opera's most important players, aggregating all the news in the week and amplifying the best work in a crowded field. If you're new to the show, look back in our, archi- in our archives and hear interviews with the likes of Artistic Director of Opera Humboldt's Opera. <laughs> Alright, ready? If you're new to the show, Look back in our archives to hear interviews with the likes of Artistic Director of Opera Omaha's One Festival, James Dara, Grammy-winning conductor, Michael Christie, and Baroque diva, Emuka Barat. It's way more exciting than watching the Bears-Packers game the other day. It is. That defined a new level of mediocrity for our Chicago All I, Bears. It was as soon as the Bears had a chance. It was how can Mitch Trubisky screw this up. Also, this banter, I can't read. This is how the show really goes. Impress the date you take to the opera by listening to our OBS Hall of Fame segments where we take a deep dive into the works and artists that you need to know. Toby, didn't you induct yourself into the Hall of Fame I once? did, and you need to know that. And if you don't have time to keep Keep up with all the news from Opaland. Jump right to the two-minute drill. Our team's hot takes on the week's opera headlines, including who's getting fired and hired in the fast-paced world of opera. Fast-paced world of opera. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Access the complete archives by adding Opera Box Score to your podcast favorites or just stream it from the Opera Box Score page on SoundCloud. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in opera land over the past week. National strikes in Paris against French President Emmanuel Macron's pension reform have led to a number of canceled performances at the Paris Opera over the past few weeks. But that hasn't stopped the Paris Opera Ballet from performing selections from the Nutcracker in protest in front of the Palais Garnier. The proposed reform would incentivize workers to retire later, which the dancers say is nearly impossible in their line of work. An article from The Guardian examines the impact of classical music on climate change. The increased importance of touring to the genre over the past few decades, the author argues, is ultimately environmentally unsustainable. We'll put a link to that uh, article on our website. Atlanta Opera has announced a new artistic advisory council that includes mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton, basses Kevin Burdett and Morris Robinson, and baritone Michael Mays. Quote, in putting together our council, we set out to find a select, exclusive group of international opera stars, each of whom has a special relationship with the Atlanta Opera, says General Director um, Tomer Zvulun. Uh, We will be working together on figuring out how we can continue to develop this company, enhance its reach, increase its diversity, and promote awareness of the fact that we are building the major international opera company that Atlanta deserves. An article in the New York Times entitled Classical Opera Has a Racism Problem has garnered some controversy, publishing a number of responses to Catherine Hughes' original article by readers. Says who, the co- small cosmetic changes are not the way to bring opera into the 21st century. They are mere distractions. We need to view the opera house as both a museum and a classroom, even if it invites discomfort. 
Exit stage right, Peter Jack- Jacoby, whose presence in Indiana University's world of classical music and arts was reflected in hundreds of reviews and columns in the Herald Times over four decades, died on Christmas Eve. He was 89 years old. German tenor and conductor Peter Schr- Peter Schreier died last week at the age of 84. His singing career spanned nearly 50 years, and he remained in the opera world as a conductor even after his final sung performance in 2005. He leaves behind many recordings of works by composers ranging from Mozart to Wagner. And on this day, December 30th, it was the birth of American soprano June Anderson in 1952. Conductor Antonio Papano was born today in 1959. Friedrich von Flautau's opera Alessandro Stradella premiered in Hamburg in 1844. Franz Lehar's The Merry Widow premiered on this day in 1905. And in 1921, it was the first performance of Prokofiev's opera Love for Three Oranges, conducted by the composer right here in Chicago. And that is your two-minute drill. That was a recording of Peter Schreier singing Dispildnis, of course. Um, And this is the time. If you are listening to us live, you can call us on the air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. Or you can tweet us at Opera Box Score. George, what stood out to you this week in uh, Opera Land? This is a really great take that classical music has a direct impact on climate change. The article in question here, which is on the website, operaboxscore.com, talks about a carbon footprint of members of a big orchestra traveling around the world to perform and, and what the impact is. The arts, specifically theater, is an extremely wasteful art form. <laughs> when you're building sets, which... 95% of the time are going to be trashed at the end of a two or a three week run. That is an extreme waste of resources. Yes, some opera companies will keep those sets in, in the repertoire and they'll come back over years. Uh, costumes, yes, those could be put into storage and reused. But in general, this is a very wasteful art form that we're dealing with. Even if you have a show that's designed almost entirely through lighting design, obviously that takes phenomenal amounts of electricity mm-hmm. to use. So this is a question that we need to continue to realize and hey, let's make this next decade a truly sustainable and environmentally conscious art form. It's one of those tricky things, uh, I think. Uh, this this article specifically talks a lot about uh, the idea of uh, travel, uh, especially, you know, using planes. You know, they're the big fuel hogs, big uh, uh, contributors to CO2 in the atmos- atmosphere, uh, all those sorts of things. Uh, it, I, it's, it's one of those things where I feel like it's a matter of what, what do you value, you know? 
I think, you know, the idea of being entirely, completely neutral is is not necessarily uh, uh, a perfect sort of... um, uh, It's not going to happen anytime soon, certainly. I think there's certainly a lot you can do in the sense of uh, building up... Uh, 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 new uh, opera houses that have carbon neutral footprints, things like that. Um, but I do think that there's a certain uh, amount of of travel that is required in a very global art form. And I, I would be interested to hear what kinds of solutions there could be um, that wouldn't, you know, put opera itself in a bad position. Weston? Yeah. Let's be real. The only reason why George advocates this article is because he wants to get hired by like Lyric Opera of Chicago or something like that. <laughs> and he's trying to convince everybody, you know, don't fly in don't whoever fly in. Con- uh, director right from here. Germany. You know, like, I mean, there, me. there is a whole argument about shop local. I mean, yeah. that's a whole thing. You know, it, one of the things that makes international houses international is the fact that they've got, you know, a German soprano, a Russian director, an Italian yeah, sure. tenor, you know, the rogue American who's brought in for kitchen charm, whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, so if we've, you know, if we did look a little more in our backyards, I mean, sure, we'd probably be relegated more to major U.S. cities in terms of the art form. But, you know, a lot of Chicago singers don't get hired in Chicago. Like they, you know, there's there's a couple of houses that are known for not hiring in their own backyards. So. And there's there's the other point, too, which is, you know, uh, most of the biggest contributors to climate change are, you know, large corporations who pollute with impunity and all that. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's a matter of I, I almost f- would feel bad to be like, all right, we can't have. Uh, we can't have good European singers coming over to visit because um, because you know Monsanto's or whatever wants to make its weird chemicals. You know, it's it's one of those things where this is this is a a debate that goes far beyond the opera world or even the art world, um, but it it's one that directly affects it. And this is something something we talked we talk a lot about about too when it comes to the European Union, Brexit, uh, the ability of opera singers to cross from country to country. Um, and there's not a solution that I think we have, but it's also a solution that I think we do need to be thinking about. And I was really interested to see this article because it's not something I've heard about too much. Uh, one Before thing- we run out of time, I just want to say that Peter Schreier represents uh, a style of classical German singing, mm-hmm. especially Mozart and Bach, that is a litmus test and presents a challenge to imitate for all young singers. You know, somebody says, oh, you need to sing this so he would sing Mozart. And maybe they find Peter Schreier. You cannot imitate this man. (laughs) No, seriously. Like, he sings so so in tune. His phrases are so legato. And it's just so, like, German. Like, everything about it is so accurate. And I'm not saying that it's bloodless or it's not passionate it is but it's it passionate is. in a very german way <laughs> in a way that is hard for us americans to understand it's definitely hard impossible for like an italian to imitate but um it's dangerous as a young singer to listen to a singer like peter Shaw, which i did and tried to imitate um i made that mistake and um yeah he's one of a kind and um yeah he definitely uh defines what we think of as mozart singing and even Bach singing from that era like the 80s, 70s, 80s, maybe 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Before we uh, wrap it up, I do want to give a quick shout out to the Atlanta Opera story because Atlanta Opera was sort of, it wasn't really my hometown opera company, but it was the one that we could get to that was kind of big enough. And for years, um, it was dominated by very sort of, that sort of war horse sort of uh, Mm -hmm. idea, very plain, very average stagings. Uh, n- not very adventurous. And over the past decade or so, they've really begun to reevaluate. And I love this idea of outreach to singers who have connections to Atlanta, local connections that have a true rooted artistic sense of what the region is about Agreed. and what they can bring to the art form as a whole. All right, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, who's got a good call for me, George? Well, I'm going to cede my time uh, in the Senate here to to Ellie Kikasek. Ellie, I want to set you up, though. So you're in a production of Don Giovanni coming up next month. Oh, I am. Yes, I'm singing um, another Zerlina, uh, this time with Bronx Opera um, up in the Bronx there. I've never been, and it's actually a really lovely place, lovely people. Um, And, yeah, so if you're in in the Bronx or in Manhattan, please feel free to join us January 12th and 17th at the Lovinger Theater. And just as a reminder to everyone, Elise Kakasek's uh, uh, album Untethered is available now on iTunes or Spotify or wherever fine CDs are sold. Ashley, do you have one for me? You know, my good call is going to be my New Year's operatic resolution, which is in 2020, I'm going to get through at least 50% of the room. If you know me, that is a big undertaking. <laughs> Uh, how about you, Oliver? Do you have a New Year's uh, resolution I'm for us? I'm going to shout out to Michael Mays, who is part of that Artistic Advisory Council. Hopefully we'll get him on the show. And I want to remind everybody that the recording of Handel's Almira from Boston Early Music Festival is out, and it's so good. Listen to it. So good. A couple other things, really super quick question. Thanks again. We just had a caller uh, here earlier on in the show mentioning a world premiere that uh, Lyric Opera did. Uh, this is back in the 90s, actually directed by Frank Galati, the show The Voyage of Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, yes. Also, um, Weston, this is the last time we're going to see each other before my Wolverines and your Crimson Tide, whatever oh. they are, are going to meet on the gridiron on New Year's Day. Y- you will be destroyed. Do you Do you want to put your money where your mouth is? <laughs> I will give you all the money in my pocket right now. I've heard this one Which before. is $3.00. <laughs> Uh, sounds like a good bet to me. All right, that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Somil Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Waddell, who can be found at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts there. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For George Cedarquist, Ashley Hardgrave, and our special guest, Elise Kakasik, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera at your local New Year's Eve party. We're back next year on Monday, January 6th at 9 p.m. Central Time with more opera news, more hot takes, and probably more hangovers. Join us then. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.